This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Mobile hunters, are you still looking for a lightweight and comfortable option to fit your hunting style? Well, look no further than Tethered's Phantom Saddle. It's extremely comfortable and extremely adjustable to fit exactly the way you want to hunt. I think my favorite features of this new saddle are the comfort channels, which is where the bridge kind of locks into the saddle. There's no more kind of fidgeting, moving your saddle around to try to find the right spot and reduce hip pinch. This just kind of locks in exactly where it's supposed to be. It's an extremely comfortable sit. The other uh, option or aspect of the saddle that I really like is the Utila Bridge. Oftentimes, you're in a tree putting your tether up, and you have a branch in the way, and so you're not at the right height. And it changes the angle of your bridge, which changes your comfort. Well, there's a Utila Bridge now that the Phantom has to where you can adjust that. So no more does it matter where exactly your tether height is as you can adjust that length of your bridge uh, with the Utila Bridge itself. I think the other thing that helped me make the adjustment two years ago-ish when I transitioned to saddle hunting was the Predator platform. If you're coming from a tree stand, a little bit of familiarity with having a platform uh, went a long way in just making me comfortable with my overall setups. So the Predator platform might be something you want to look into. If you're interested and you're still just kind of on the fence, you can go to tetherednation.com and be sure to check out all their saddle setups that they have available, the Phantom and the Mantis, and see which one might be right for you. They also just released recently a new Sishauler ES 2.0. Uh, these have some built-in pockets to keep some of your smaller items uh, compartmentalized like S beaners and so forth, which is really nice. Keeps them from falling out in the timber when you're pulling out your tether or your, or your, uh, or your alignments are open. That's usually what I'm keeping in mind. So head to tetherednation.com and check out all of tethered's gear. The first thing I do in the morning before a hunt, before a scout, or just before getting ready for work is have my morning coffee. And I'm sure most of you out there listening are the same. Make sure you're filling your mug with Skull Brew Coffee as it is the only coffee company that is both 2% for conservation certified and donates 10% of its profits to conservation organizations to help secure the future of our wild places. So head to SkullBrewCoffee.com and choose between three killer roasts of coffee and know that you are supporting conservation with every sip. Welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 192. 
Today we dive into episode two, part number two of the Buck Betting Hunting Beast Listener Q&A miniseries with Dan Enfall. So stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you are doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. The hunting season is nearly upon us here. It's like I can almost feel just a little bit of a change in the in the weather in the evenings. It's we've had a couple this past week. We had some nice kind of cooler um, temperature. Unfortunately, it's it's starting to heat up again a little bit here for the next couple of days. But if I look at the forecast and I look out, I can actually see where we no longer are in the 80s. Um, during the, during the day, I think we're going to have a high the one day of, of 78. So that's pretty exciting that kind of all signs are pointing and leading to, you know, deer season being just around the corner. And so with that, you know, now that the cooler temperatures are starting to, you know, at least when the sun goes down, uh, the, 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 the temp dips pretty, um, pretty significantly, which is nice, which then allows me to get outside and do a lot more, you know, shooting of my bow and stuff like that, um, without getting completely, you know, eaten alive by, by mosquitoes. And so this past week, you know, I try to do this throughout the summer, but this past week was really the probably the longest saddle session that I've had in in quite a few weeks since I had some nice cooler temperatures. So I was able to get into the tree, uh, shoot my bow a little bit, uh, making sure things are dialed in. Uh, I have a podcast coming out with uh, Greg Litzinger. You know my buddy Greg. Uh, I was over at his place actually in New Jersey and had him setting up my bow. So doing you know shooting all year round, but really kind of fine tuning things and went over to his place and had him had him tune me up and make sure everything was ship shape and good to go. And then been shooting out of the saddle, kind of getting, you know, all my, uh, all my things kind of dialed in and my systems kind of in, in place. That's one thing I'll do here in the next, uh, probably this week actually is, you know, um, is really try to get out and, and, and climb, actually climb to, to hunting height and, um, using, you know, exactly what I'll be using when I'm in the timber. I'm kind of a big advocate for, you know, practicing, you know, the way you're going to hunt. Um, just because there's a lot of, you know, missteps you can make whenever you get into the timber that first, you know, hunt or two, I'm guilty of it just about every year, um, where that first hunt is usually almost, you know, kind of a disaster. I forget something the one year I forgot my release, you know, or maybe you're just not as smooth into the tree as you want to be. Um, and so what I try to do is I try to do some climbing and stuff like that, you know, in advance and set everything up the way I'm going to set it up when I hunt that way, those first couple hunts aren't the, um, aren't basically the preseason, if if you will. Um, you know, I don't want my preseason games to, to be during, uh, to, during prime time. You know, I, I've had that happen in the past one year where I was setting up and I was just, it was early in the year. It was maybe like the second hunt. And I just hadn't quite had all the kinks worked out yet. and was making a little bit of noise, getting into a tree and my target deer was standing there at about 20 yards watching me get into the tree. So it was that lesson that I kind of took and I was like, you know what, I need to start, you know, working out these bugs prior to prior to walking into the timber so anything little thing you can do now is going to pay you dividends uh you know dividends later uh the other thing that i've been up to you know lately uh is is really starting to swap out some cameras uh, you know i've had some of these ones that are on these new pieces soaking for a little while and so really trying to uh you know see if i have the cameras in the right place if i have uh deer at all you know on, on these particular properties these new pieces of public and there's one where I actually just completely pulled the camera. Um, it's a small parcel that I thought, you know, might have some, might have some promise and, um, check the camera yesterday and there was nothing, nothing on it. And now this would be probably the, I guess the second or third season that I've run a camera on this piece. One year it was decent. The past two years, um, you know, there was no, 
you know, what I would consider to be a, a buck on camera that I was willing to shoot. So I pulled that camera and I'm going to redeploy it somewhere else. I kind of know what I need to know about that property. I can, you know, kill some does if I need to there, you know, and, uh, unit use it almost as a burner place if I just want to get out the hunt. But, uh, I don't need a camera in there to tell me, you know, where the, where the does are going to be and stuff like that. So I pulled that camera and basically kind of wiping that slate clean with that, with that particular property. Cause as I've, as I've mentioned in the past, it's like, I'm really going to have, you know, just the month of, you know, beginning of September, cause my season comes in early in October to get it done in Pennsylvania. And then after that, I'm out of state for the most part. Um, and then maybe some, maybe some late season or super late rut. Um, you know, if, if my tag isn't filled by, by then. So I'm really trying to kind of hone in on, you know, where I'm going to be hunting, where I'm going to be spending my time, giving myself the best opportunity to chase some decent deer. So, so with that, I'm going to be headed out today and, uh, actually setting up some cell cameras cause I have some inventory on some places and some areas that I feel now that with, you know, some of the bucks that I've seen, um, that I think have promise. Um, and so those areas, you know, and, and these are usually, you know, areas that are, I would consider to be primary scrape areas. You know, as I'd mentioned before, I'm not hanging over eggs. I really don't have access to, to ag and so forth, at least in close, super close proximity to where I hunt, like in terms of just being adjacent to, to the property. Um, and so I'll now start to think about transitioning some of these things. Cause now I kind of know what's around, I'm going to set these things in places where in areas that I, I may consider uh, a, a hunt and hang some cell cameras and then just kind of keep monitoring, you know, a couple of the critical areas from afar. That way I'm not needing to kind of traipse back in there and, and check anything out. And I'll know, um, I'll know exactly what's going on. I think I mentioned this in the past podcast, but I'm, I'm, the one area that I'm hanging cell cameras in today is an area that's close to um, uh, a place that I glassed a couple, uh, a couple really good deer uh, last weekend. I think it was, I think it was last weekend. Uh, two of the biggest deer I've ever seen in PA um, live or on the hoof, uh, whether it was hunting or whether it was glassing or whatever, whatever the case was. Um, and so there's an area um, near this particular spot that I'm going to, that I already have a camera. And I think I may actually have two of these jokers on camera um, just very early June. So it wasn't, that it wasn't like I was able to tell, you know, how much potential they had. I just know that the two videos I have from that particular camera pool, there were two deer on it to where I was like, okay, you know, these two deer are worth watching and see what they end up turning into. They had a pretty decent head start over all the other deer that I, that I was seeing. Um, and so what I'm hoping is when I go to check that camera today, I'm hoping those two, two are on it. Uh, if not, not a big deal. I think, you know, in the general area that I'm at, um, if they stay, if I'm, if they're, you know, if that is part of their court area, I'm sure they'll make it through at some point, um, as it's a primary kind of scrape area. Um, but the other thing I'm going to do is I'm actually going to walk to a different part of the property closer to where I had seen them and hang another camera and see if maybe, um, I could catch them, you know, on their bed to food pattern here in September. Cause we're not, or when I open in early September or mid September rather, um, cause I'm not that far away from where I glass them in that bean field. So, um, that's kind of the plan for today. The one last thing or two things I want to make mention one, I just recently put out another video, uh, the trailer video, another trailer video, the build. So this is part number two video. There'll probably be a part number three and maybe even a part number four, um, video that I'll put out. But as of right now, you know, the videos are trying to catch up to the actual, <laughs> the actual trailer production itself. So the trailer is done for the most part at this point, I uh, just put the bed in this week or got my, my bed situation kind of figured out. Um, like I mentioned, there's some few odds and ends I need to pick up just to, you know, to go out on a trip, but it is done. Everything is in, it's ready to rock and roll. Uh, so that's exciting. Those videos will hopefully be coming out in the not so distant future, the part three and part four of the, 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 the completely completed project. And the last thing to make mention, you know, it's appropriate since Dan is on uh, this episode as well, you know, headed into this, this betting conversation, 
but he does have some beast sticks available. So you can get those at the hunting beast store. Um, I think it's huntingbeastshop.com if I'm not mistaken, or you can just go to the hunting beast forum. Um, you know, and you'll be able to find your way to the shop, uh, to, to pick up beast sticks. So if you don't know anything about beast sticks, if you've not heard of them, which I find it hard pressed that you haven't, you know, Dan is meticulous about his gear. And, uh, you know, one of the things he wanted to, to create was a stick that was, you know, didn't have moving parts had a double step on it. It was shorter, a little shorter, lighter. I think he has 24 inch and 20 inch options available. If I'm not mistaken, I think the only ones in stock are the 24 inch ones. Um, so if you're in the market for sticks and you're looking for good quality sticks that are light, um, we'll get the job done, head over to the, the beast hunting store or the beast, uh, store and pick yourself up some beast sticks. So with that, we have a, a super cool show today. Um, this is part number two of the buck betting conversation that we had during the course of the Hunting Beast listener Q&A miniseries with Dan. This uh, part number two, we'll, we'll catch this uh, in progress as this is just the second half of the conversation that we had with uh, with our guest listener as well. So with that, I hope you guys are picking up some good stuff from these podcasts that we've done with Dan so far. We'll have one more series with Dan coming out after this one about uh, covering aggressive tactics and just really kind of... Uh, Really kind of a catch-all. I know that I've been picking up a lot of tidbits along the way from him that I'm looking to throw into my bag of tricks for this season. And as I'm going out setting cameras when I'm doing a little bit of scouting and stuff like that, um, it's certainly been helping me along. So I hope it's helping you guys out as well. And with that, I want to thank you all for listening. All right, on to the next question here. Uh, this fellow writes, he says, um, you know, when you're talking about, cre- we're still in swamps here. So he's like, when you're talking about these groups of trees, you know, for islands and scouting around them, He's like, are you, you know, how are you scouting those trees? Are you kind of like jumping from like groups of trees to groups of trees within the swamp? Or are you still focusing on that edge, that transition and trying to find those trails that are coming in and out of what might be pointed toward those solo trees or those solo kind of spots of brush that might look like, you know, might be buck bedding. How are you going about kind of assessing those, those potential bed opportunities? Yeah, you, you know, uh, you could do either way. You can jump from clump of trees to clump of trees, but generally I'm following a transition uh, on edge of some sort, whether it's an exterior edge, a hard edge where ground comes to water, or it's an interior edge of like dogwood meets cattails or tamarack meets cattails, but I'm following some sort of edge and generally the bedding's along those edges. And if there's a, a group of trees nearby that are out a little ways, usually from the hard transition, it gives them enough access to get further into a swamp and away from the, the predators and people on the edge of the swamp. And, and generally there is a trail coming from that, uh, tree to the, the land. Um, but sometimes they are out further. So hopping from, from big tree to big tree out there ain't a bad idea either. Right. Um, so I, think I guess both, both. Yeah. I, I, and this is just like from a novice, like swamp hunter perspective, I'll, I'll share this, which is, you know, for me, the easiest way for me that I've found is that what I've learned to really like about hunting, you know, swampier areas is that, you know, it's kind of what you and I talked about, Dan, whenever you're hunting bottoms, right? It just hold, it holds sign, right? And so I can pretty quickly see where deer are moving and, and how they're moving. And so when I go into scout, I will find a deer trail. And if it looks like it's headed in the direction that I think there might be bedding, or if I can see out and see that there's a tree or a clump of brush or something like that, or if I see it on a map, and it's headed in the right direction, 
I will jump on that trail and I will just walk that thing out until I start finding other sign that might pique my interest. Like whether or not I come across, you know, a, an old rub line or something like that, that then I start to veer off and say, okay, where's this going to take me? Like, I'm not ashamed to say that I'm going to use that their Intel to my advantage instead of jumping from place to place. And I've just found for me, because I'm newer at it, I just feel more confident in following that because I feel like it's going to eventually land me somewhere decent or give me another piece of the puzzle that I didn't already have. So that's kind of, kind of been my approach, but, um, all right, next, do we, did we cover that one thoroughly enough, Dan, do you think finding those clumps of trees, anything you want to add to that? Are we good to go there? I think we're good to go. Good to go. All right. Um, all right. So this fella here writes in and says, you know, hunting beds with multiple exits, how do you predict which one a buck will use? That's interesting. Cause I, like, I always kind of assume that, you know, a buck is going to have like one kind of primary way out of a bed, especially if he's bedded there on wind based bedding. When he gets up to leave, he's going to leave in the direction where he's planning to go. So if that's food, it's in the direction of food. If it's, you know, going mm-hmm. to check doe bedding, it's in the direction of doe bedding. But have you run across ones where it was like clear that they were using multiple exits from a bed? And if so, how do you kind of, sure. how, how do you plan? Sure. I, see, I see that a lot. Um, um, Obviously, we all prefer a bed in there that has one entrance exit. I mean, <laughs> right. right. That Make makes it, easy it pretty easy. Yeah. But pretty often they have multiple exits. Um, and, and really, um, there's probably one that's pretty active at any given time. Mm-hmm. So they might be going one direction because uh, right now they're competing on corn. Earlier in the year, they might have been going a different direction because they're feeding on acorns. Um, a different time they might be leaving a different way because um, they're heading towards those. Um, when it's hot out, maybe they're heading towards water. I think a big part of it is determining where those trails go, which direction they're heading, what's going on in those directions. And uh, oftentimes I'll know of a good veterinary that has multiple exits like that. And I monitor it from a distance. So I might go look at a cornfield that is one direction, walk the perimeter and look at the sign coming into that cornfield, see if it's fresh, see how big tracks. Then I might go down in by the river bottom where it comes through and see if there's a, uh, where the crossing comes down from that bed area and see if there's a big sign coming out of there that way. You know, so monitor from a distance, whether it's with trail cameras or it's with um, taking a walk. Uh, and then move in on the right day and, and, and hunt the right direction because of that. But you really, um, you have to become a detective when you get into this bedding stuff. I mean, it's, it really takes a sharp guy. Mm-hmm. I walk into a bedding area and I look at it and I say, well, okay, now this is obviously being used by box, but there's no rubs. Most of the bedding areas in this area have rubs. There's only one or two in here. Why? Hmm, well, they're probably not bedding here during the rut time frame so uh which is probably when they rub the most is mid-october you know through most of november so are they been their late season or they've been their early season then you figure well look at this they don't have much cover here for late season until saying okay this is an early season bedding area so so my point is is you got to be the detective who goes in there looks at it thinks about things like that and decides well why are they here when are they here what are they doing what wind are they here on when they leave this way, where do I think they're going? Why do I think they're going that way? And I, I know what your, your listeners probably thinking is, is that sounds good in theory, but, uh, 
man, I don't know where they're going, you know? Right. So if, if that's the case, sometimes you just got to throw a hunt at it and try. Right. And, um, you, you know, if, if you're on the downwind side, you know, and you, you take the trail going out the downwind side and you're a hundred yards from bedding, if there's no fresh sign on that trail, I mean, hundred anyways, because sometimes one buck doesn't leave a lot of sign. Right. Nothing happens. Maybe you right away try the other side before he ever goes that way and smells that you've been there. You know? Right. Um, and one thing's for sure, though, that um, typical direction they go at a certain time period seems to repeat itself annually. Hmm. Or at least, you know, or when, when the same crops are in, you know, they go a certain direction when acorns are dropping. They, you know, I see bucks use the same bed in areas within a week time frame every year. Like you start to pinpoint that certain bedding areas are really good for a peak, like, like say, um, late September or early September, or maybe early October or, or maybe pre-rut or, you know, maybe they're a real good one in late season. And you start to put that together and, and start to realize, okay, I'm going to leave that spot alone till then. So it doesn't get burned out. But really going back to the, to the, same thing, not to beat a dead horse, but you got to be the detective. You got to go in there and you got to look at the situation and determine what you, what your best guess is, and live with the results and, and learn from. Right. Yeah. I mean, I it's it's one of those things. Like what you said it right at the beginning when you were talking about like, I just kind of thought of what's in play, right? Like at that time of year, like thinking of the seasonality and what the what the odds are that they'd be interested in that time of year. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I think that that, like we said earlier too, it's like all beds are not created equal. Right. So they're using them at different times of the year for different, for different reasons. You know what I mean? Especially, Mm -hmm. you know, I think whenever you're, when you're outside of the rut, I mean, they have very specific reasons why they're using those, those certain areas. Right. And I think if you think of it in that context and it's like, if you're in the early part of the season, it's like, man, it's, they're, they're, they're bed to food and probably unless something moves them, if it's the right wind for that spot, they're going to use that place to bed and then go and then go to feed. Right. And so mm-hmm. it's, it's just thinking about, you know, especially when you said waterhole, man, some of these warmer early parts of the season, it's like that those would be dynamite setups, you know, knowing that they're going to leave and go to potentially go to a watering hole or if there's a watering hole on the way to food, like even better, you know what I mean? It's like, so just thinking yeah. of all those factors that kind of, or around that bedding area, like what could entice them to move in a specific direction and what's the probability that that's the most important thing on their mind that day or th- that time of the year, you know? So, but, uh, this that actually covers the next question. This, this fellow wrote in, cause he was asking about, I think we covered it cause he was saying, you know, a bed worn down to the dirt does that indicate, you know, year round bedding. And I think we already kind of talked about that they're bedding at different places for different years, but, it stands to reason. I think you know, one that's worn down just means it's a bed that's being used often, right? Right, but you can you can have a bedding area that's used way more than that bed that's worn down, hmm. but none of the beds are worn down that much because he moves around a lot, right? So, so it's all relative. You see what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Uh. And, and a bed that's worn to the ground could just mean that for a week straight, there's a deer laying there. Right. You know, they could they wear that down pretty quick laying there the whole day, shifting around and stuff. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, yeah, that's a hard question to answer accurately. Yeah. yeah. Now I get what you're saying. Cause especially in those areas, like, you know, if there's, 
I'm just going to use hill country for an example. If there's an area, you know, that, that maybe a buck has like five, six beds around a point, you know what I mean? He's shifting for each, for each different wind. It's like, he may not use any one of them enough to wear it to the dirt, but that doesn't mean he's not there 40% of the year. <laughs> you know what right. I, you know what I mean? Getting, it's the same thing we talked about earlier with, with Easton about how he where the two places he hunts in Ohio, one's rolling hills and one's the steep. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure hunting both, he knows of spots in the rolling hills that you have bucks all the time, but you can really hardly find the beds unless you're real, real close. But, right. And that might be a better spot than the spot on in, in the steep hill country where there's a worn in bed. It's kind of <laughs> all relative to, <laughs> right. to specific scenarios. Right. Now, do you find in rolling hills that they, that it's less, uh, are they any less consistent with their bedding in rolling hills versus versus steeper terrain? I don't think so. I okay. think uh, it's it's more that you have a harder time recognizing because once you recognize it, once you figure it out, it seems pretty consistent. Right. It's just it gets it gets hard to see. Right. All right. So this next question, this fellow writes in and says, uh, "This is a, this is an interesting one because." I'm curious to see what your answer is. He, he's asking essentially how close is too close when setting up over like this would be assuming, you know, where a precise bed is versus a bedding area. He's just asking how close mm-hmm. is too close. Like what's, what's your comfort zone for trying to set up over top over a specific bed. I really like to get about 75 yards from the bed, but it's, it's uh, really relative to each bed. Right. Um, and where you're hunting. Um, sometimes in hilly terrain, you'd be hard pressed to get within 200 yards in a wooded situation. Um, but in swamps, sometimes I can get 50, 75 yards pretty quiet and set up a stand yet. And, uh, in the swampy areas, a lot of times I'll see them get up and come to me and shoot them from 75 yards. Hmm. Um, but what you have to do is, is if you, you know, that bed is precisely when you were in there finding out that bed was precisely, you have to go to that bed and look around and say, okay, how's this buck coming out of here? It goes back to the detective again. Right. How's this deer coming out of here? Which way is he going? Okay, he's going that way. I'm going to set up along this trail over there. I'm, I'm looking that direction. I'm like, okay, what can he see from this bed? What can he hear from this bed? What can he smell from this bed? And generally, buck bedding areas, I mean, we call it a bed, but there's usually 10 or 15 beds in a tight area. Right occasionally you get that spot where there's one real good bed, but the majority of the time there's multiple beds and you just got to get a, you know, into the beds that are closest to you and look in your direction and say, okay, you know, where can I set up? Now the problem with that is, is in a lot of terrains, there's satellite bedding and you're going to kick some deer when you get close. And that's just something you got to live with. The buck bedding area, I mean, is different than the satellite bedding. And it's like I said before, you can see the aha, bedding you know in that core area not and you can tell the other bedding surrounding it not wanting to be in there right right but it's a matter of getting just out of sight sound and smell and once you know you're out of those ranges you want to be as close as you can without entering any of those ranges you don't want them to hear you you don't want them to smell you and you don't want them to see you but you want to be as close as possible the best time to do that is to figure that out is in winter time or springtime scouting when there's no leaves and look as far as you can see in that direction that he's exiting and 
where you can't see no more, you can't hear the approach no more from that bed, that's, you know, that's where you should be setting up. Right. Easton, how about you, man? Like what's, uh, you know, if you have a bedding area that you're going to hunt, what's your, uh, what's your general comfort zone in terms of how close you're willing to get and how, how much you're willing to press the envelope? Yeah. I mean, I, I'd have to agree with Dan. I think in that lower country, that swamp country, I feel like it would be easier, which, you know, I obviously don't have a whole lot of experience with that, but you know, where it's thicker and nastier, you can kind of push the envelope a little bit more and you might naturally think with the, the changes in elevation in the hill country, you might be able to use that to your advantage a little bit, but at the same time, like we already talked about, I think a lot of these smarter bucks, these older deer are using that elevation. They're already beating you to it. They're using that elevation to watch you come in. So I would agree that it's, it's more difficult for me to push that envelope as much. Like he said, probably 150, 200 yards is about as close as I'd want to get hunting that type of terrain. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Right. I think it's interesting because people are probably sick of us saying it, but it's for me, it's it's relative to what this what my scenario is, right? It's like if I'm on an out-of-state hunt mm-hmm. and I know where there's deer bedded and I've got so many days to make it happen, it's like I'm going to press in as far as I possibly can to try to to try to stick an arrow in it because I've only got so many days where if it's closer to my home where I might have a couple opportunities to hunt it, I may not go in guns a blazing on the first one, you know what I mean? And I might try to put myself in a mm-hmm. position to have an opportunity, but also not completely screw the pooch on it, on it either. If I feel like I could possibly hunt it, you know, maybe get two hunts out of it or maybe three hunts out of it. If I'm, if I'm lucky, you know, cause that's one thing I think people, if they're hunting private, you know, I'm a firm believer in you got to, you got to bump some deer to kill some deer. You know what I mean? Like I, I definitely believe, I definitely believe that, but I think you also want to use your, you know, uh, use your brain a little bit and under, and have a little bit of a risk reward analysis, especially if you're on, you're on private and, you know, maybe the deer jumps and goes over to the, the neighbors and you don't see him anymore or, or you have a controlled environment to where you can plan the hunt out a little bit more. And so long as he doesn't get bumped and it's not rut, you have a chance to try to go in and hunt it when your when your conditions are right. Um, and I'm just thinking about this one setup cause I was, when I saw this question come in, I was really looking forward to asking cause the one bed that I found this year, it's, uh, I've been kind of debating how far I could push in. It's the one that's in that kind of, you know, along that, uh, ridge of that, that, that mountain kind of in that swampy area. It's really weird, kind of clear cut that turns into a swamp and I can see how he's coming out. Cause I've been trying to figure out how I was actually going to hunt it. And I think what he's doing is coming out of that bed, coming down the mountain, because that's where he's looking. That's how he's looking out of it. And that's the clear trail that's kind of mm-hmm. coming out of it. And there's a, a white oak that's there. And that white oak is just kind of off to the off to the right. So it's like if you get the right wind, you could probably cut it. And then there's a clear trail that kind of comes around that bend and heads over to where this primary scrape is that I that I found also. And so what I'm thinking is, is if I kind of hug that edge and have the right wind to where I can just kind of cut the wind just enough. I can probably catch him coming out of his bed and I can probably push in as far as like, I don't know. I would say maybe 
75 yards would probably be as, as far as I could push it, I would say. I, if I got any closer than that, I'd be really nervous about the about the wind situation there. Um, but that's that's kind of my thinking. So that was a helpful kind of conversation for, for me to hear you kind of explain that because I think that that's helped me decide how I might hunt that sp- uh, particular spot. But So anything else to add to that one or are we good on, good on that one? I think we're good. Good, good. All right, so this next one here, uh, this one's kind of interesting too. It says he says, you know, when, how, or why will mature bucks abandon the upper one third and bed lower? You know, is this predominantly in high pressure situations? Question mark. So when when do you see deer that aren't kind of following that upper one third military crest kind of bedding scenario? I'm assuming he's referring to hill country here. Yeah, when there's an advantage to bed lower, right? Or when you're in mixed terrain. So if you're in uh, hill country, but it's farm terrain, there'll be some bedding in there that where they bed like they do in flat farms based on transition edges and things like that. And there'll be some bedding along the um, steep drop-offs. I mean, uh, if you mix a little bit of swamp, little potholes in there, they'll bed down the, some will bed down the swamps and they'll bed like it's a swamp, right? Um, another thing I see like in, in, um, big wooded ranges of hill country is I see them bed down in ravines uh, sometimes where it creates a bowl uh, effect with the wind. Mm-hmm. And at, I can remember the first one I found where it was just a giant buck I really wanted to kill. And I figured out where he was bedding and I, I could not figure it out until I went to set up on him. I mean, I was trying to make myself believe he was bedding there. I knew it, but I was like, why would he bet here? Because there's always that aha moment with those big bucks right. you know, that they're here for a reason, you know? And I, I, uh, finding a few of these beds, what I found is when you go around them and you try to set up, you drop milkweed, no matter which direction you drop it from, if you drop more than one, you keep doing it for a couple of minutes within a few minutes, one of them is going to go straight to that bed. Right. And that's why he's bedded there. It, a lot of it has to do with the way the terrain funnels wind, mm-hmm. which is why those uh, thermal uh, hubs are so attractive to giant bugs. Right. It's because they pull in the, the wind from every direction, you know, because they get a little swirl in that hole. They get the thermal effect, the wind. I mean, you think about it, uh, in hill country, you, you've got a huge factor against you in the first place because you automatically got two different winds. Right. You got your straight wind and you got your thermal wind, and, and your thermal wind changes. Um, you, you know, a few times a day. So, you know, it, change, it changes in the morning time. It changes uh, in the evening time. So, you, you know, you get your drop, you rise, and you drop again. Mm-hmm. And then your wind, uh, so you got two different directions going on there, and they're going to use that to their advantage. Now, if they can get to a spot where it's pulling that wind in a circle, I mean, how do you get near them? I mean, they got right. wind coming from every direction. Yeah. So a lot of times, um, those lower beds have something to do with the terrain and how the terrain lays out. Um, another thing is, um, I've seen some terrains where the hillsides don't get logged because the loggers don't want to go through the hills or whatever. And that the bottoms are logged and thick and, and, uh, nasty and, uh, create bedding. And, uh, they don't really want to bed on a, on a hill steep, not steep, rounded, whatever. If it's, um, giant oak trees, uh, you know, every 50 feet and it's wide open, you can see for a mile. Right. 
they need some cover. You know what I mean? Right. So that'll force them to where there's cover too. Um, so, uh, those are the main ones I can think of off the bat. Right. Pre- I'm, I'm assuming pressure would have something to do if you have people hunting ridge tops and like, you know, they're bedding in that top third or that's close to the ridge top and there's a lot of action up there. I'm imagining that would drive them down lower as long as there was decent, you know, decent or adequate bedding down there. Is that fair to, fair to assume too? I would kind of agree with that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, if there's pressure where the bedding is, they're going to move their bedding. Yeah. Um, but generally if, uh, if it's an area well laid out for, um, bedding at the top third, mm-hmm. I'll find they'll abandon the bedding that is getting the pressure, but they'll find a, a ridge or something that's not because, um, even nowadays, most, most people don't, don't seek out those overlooked spots. Right. Right. They might have to you go know, like along like that one... road or, Right. They might have to go one ridge system over and find that same kind of similar setup for that wind, that wind condition. And they're just as happy to do that as they are to stay there and be bothered, you know? Correct. Correct. But, uh, cool. Um, anything else on, on that one? I think we covered that one pretty well. Do you agree? Mm -hmm. All right. I think we've got, I think we only have two more here and I think we're, I think we're good. Um, so this next one, this fellow writes in, he's talking about swamps. We actually just started touching on it, but he's asking this, the question specifically. And what he's basically saying is that he's got swamps and a peninsula that he's trying to get out to. And he said, it's hard to sneak into because he, it seems like every time he goes in, he's hitting doe bedding right off the bat. And then after that, the does run through the bucks get alerted and then, you know, and, and then move on. Um, his question is, is how does he get in there without spooking deer? And is there, you know, do you have a method for that or like a, a, a way to kind of get into that buck bedding without alerting every buck that you're there with the, with the does running through? So what's your, what's your take on that? Yeah, that's, that's a hard nut. I mean, yeah. <laughs> it's, it, it's hard to get around that. Right. Uh, I can say this, that, um, uh, um, if you can't do it, if you, you can't, you know, go around that doe bedding or, or it's in a vicinity where you have to spook some deer to get there. Um, I would say go in real early, like noonish mm-hmm. instead of like three or four in the afternoon, go in there like noonish and let them spook out of there. Um, just keep walking slow when you spook them so that they don't, uh, look at you as a threat. So they trot off. Where if you like stop or hide on them or try to sneak, sometimes they just uh, really freak out, you know. Right. Um, but noonish, um, and let whatever happens happen. I believe that those bucks are more uh, lethargic midday, and they'll they'll get alerted when deer run around. But literally, deer do run around, you know, in swamps, right? Pretty much, and those deer will take alert to that, and they'll be like, "Okay, what's going on?" But I really don't see those bucks sprinting out of those bedding areas or going long distance because of that. Right. A lot of times they just uh, really monitor what's going on. And I'd say if you go in early like that, they have plenty of time to forget about what happened. Right. You know, and and uh, uh, if you do spook something and you're close to your tree and you're cl- close to the bucks that are bedded, sit back, sit still, don't make no noise, and just give it some time. I mean, if you get in there at noon, you have the time to do that. I mean, I don't like getting in there at noon and sitting all day myself. I, I like uh, sitting the prime hours. But in some situations, it's a lot more beneficial to get in there, make your disturbance, and let it have a lot of time to settle back down. Right. I've seen bucks um, run out of a bedding area um, when does bust through or when you kick them up. 
not knowing what happened. Or you just sit back and wait, and an hour or so later, they come sneaking back in from downwind, smelling to see if anybody's around and go right back to their beds. Um, I've also seen them just sit still and never leave. I've I've kicked bucks or does through bedding areas as I get to the tree. You see them sprint through the bedding area, and you think, well, I'm screwed. <laughs> you climb the tree, and, and uh, two hours later, a buck gets about of a bed right where the does ran. It comes right to you, and you're like, okay. <laughs> but I've also done it and seen the buck get up and run. Right. You know, so it's not something you want to do on purpose, but I really don't think it's as much of a game ender as people make it out to be. Right. I think in a lot of cases, it's 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 still doable, even if you kick a few deer out of there. I just think you don't want to be doing it in the last couple hours of daylight when the deer's sitting alert in his bed, waiting for waiting for time to get up, um, and then has longer to you know, a shorter period of time to forget about it. Right. You know, think about when you're in the tree and you, you, you hear a deer approaching. I mean, we talked about this before you, you concentrate in that spot for the longest time, but after an hour or so, if nothing's coming out, you haven't heard another sound. You just forget about it. Right. Yeah. Yep. So, you know, give that, t- that deer enough adequate time to forget about it. And I think, uh, I think most of the time, uh, it won't bother your hunt. Right. I think if, I think as, I think if it as long as, as long as they're only hearing you, right? Like the the bucks, or they're only hearing the deer, and they're not, and you're keeping the wind out of wherever they're bedding. I think that you're. Mm-hmm. I think that it's not a as much of a, a game breaker as people want to make it out to be. I think they, I think they don't give. I think people don't give deer enough credit for having the uh, uh, enough nerve to withstand a little bit of a disturbance. I think we, I think we treat them a little bit too much with kid gloves, where I think they'll take a little mm-hmm. bit more than 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 we think that they will. Um, I think that's probably a lot of you know, hunting media, TV shows, you know, stuff like that probably kind of has, you know, magazines, whatever has beaten that into us that like they, you know, they're these super skittish creatures, but I just, I think that they're very curious creatures. And I think, yeah, you don't want to go, you know, abusing that ability to try to get close and blowing them out of places over, you know, over and over and over again, they'll just get tired of it. Just like you would get tired of getting bothered. You just leave because you're tired of getting bothered, not because you're scared, you know? And I think yeah, I've, I've literally seen dozen hunters go through an area and after they leave a deer, get up and come out of it. And you're like, really? Yeah. How'd they get that? You know, how'd they not flush that deer, you know? Yeah. And, and the deer come out nonchalant. Like he knows they left, you know? Yeah. Um, but I'm not trying to portray it as it's a great thing to kick deer through there. I mean, it's not. Right. right. You, like, you, you certainly won't, don't want to do a drive through the area and then, <laughs> and then hunt it. But uh, right. what I am saying is, is if, if you don't have a choice, um, go in midday and just make the best of it because I've, I've seen it work out better than, than you're perceiving it'll work out right. a lot of the time. Right. Easton, how about you, man? You have some, you have some situations where you've had to kick some deer out or, you know, an area that was hard to access that you've had to walk through to, to access, maybe move a few does around and, and still had some, and still had either a good encounter or a good visual or something like that. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I would say probably the best property I hunt out of anywhere, at least here in Ohio. Um, I could probably only count maybe two or three times this past fall where I was able to access that spot without bumping a single deer. I mean, it was pretty much every time I was going in, I was bumping two, three, four, five does at a time. And I probably had the best season I've ever had in that spot as far as seeing mature deer goes. 
And, you know, I did get in pretty early, but I think a lot of it has to do with it's okay to bump some deer as long as, you know, I kind of say a soft bump and a hard bump. There's a little bit of a difference between spooking them just to where they kind of slip out the back door and absolutely freaking them out. And I think as long as you're not going in there, guns a-blazing, and you do it with a little bit of subtleness and slip into your tree stand, settle down and let let the woods calm down a little bit too, there's really not as much of an effect as you might think. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I would agree with that. I've had I had one of my best encounters with uh, making a little bit of noise. I didn't blow a deer out, but I was making noise, and he just it made him curious, and he came in to check me out, you know. Um, I didn't get to put an arrow in him and that was a bit of a bummer, but he definitely wasn't spooked. He was more just, Hey, who's in my, who's in my territory type of situation. Um, I've had deer run right up to me in the swamp while, you know, while I'm navigating <laughs> at night. They, they hear me moving and they come running, you know, probably, you know, you, you, you rarely get a sight of them, but right. they're probably young bucks, but, uh, they might, yeah, I mean, they might've just thought you that, were that, that you were that rutten raccoon that you have. that's super funny you guys mentioned that um this past season i was it was one of the earlier hunts in the season first time i hung and then hunted this stand and i really liked the spot so i decided to keep that stand where it was at and there was a, a branch that was in the way of a good shooting lane that i had and once i got down after dark i started cutting this limb and next thing I know, I mean, it was pitch black and I hear something coming at me and it turns out it was a buck. And I'm, I'm convinced that it thought I was another deer thrashing a limb. Hmm. And, but I was sawing this limb off and this thing came charging at me and I'm already scared of the dark as is. And I took <laughs> off that towards my tree stand and I tried running through this giant pile of treetops because the, the woods had been logged. And I busted my shins up. Try- I mean, it was it was the scariest thing. But looking back on it, it's pretty funny because I know it was probably just a, a young buck thinking I was another buck in his territory. Right. That's pretty funny. I like the fact that you're okay with admitting I'm, I'm kind of scared of the dark, man. That's good. I love it. You know what I mean? It's I'm like, not afraid to admit it. That's right, man. That's right. Things that go bump in the night might freak you out a little bit. It's all right. <laughs> Oh man. Awesome. Well, I lied earlier. We have two questions now. Cause there's one that someone asked that I, I skipped over and I think it's a good one for us to end on for, for all three of us to answer, but we'll get this guy's next. Then we'll end with this closer. Um, this guy, I think, I think this is a good question, Dan, cause this guy's new, um, to beast hunting over overall. Um, and I think a lot of folks mm-hmm. as they're, you know, getting into beast hunting probably have some of these questions and what he's saying, he's like, Hey, I'm, I'm new to the beast method. You know, I'm planning on giving it a go this season. You know, he's like, I've heard others talk about, you know, several times about afternoon hunts being more efficient than morning hunts. However, if you can only hunt for a weekend, what would be some tactics that, uh, to use when beast hunting in the mornings? So beast hunting in the mornings and with limited time, I think is his question. Yeah, I think, I think we got into that a little bit. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, for me, I'm a little bit further back and a little more, uh, uh, strategic about not just busting into bedding mm-hmm. when I'm hunting in the morning. I, I sit on the trail before they circle to go downwind because then they start getting to, when, when they come into the bedding, they come in kind of from straight downwind and it's not exactly sure what, where they're coming from where they, when they leave in the evening, they go on that trail you see coming out of the bedding. I mean, it's pretty obvious where they're going. Right. I mean, like, like one person said, there might be three or four exits, but he's going on an exit. 
or in the morning, they, they tend to just kind of come in from downwind. Um, but if you know which direction they're coming from and you can get on the trail before they sweep downwind, um, right. that might be a better situation. Uh, that way, if they do come in, in, in uh, with daylight to shoot, you're probably going to get your, 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 your shooting. Right. Or if they do get in there really early, they get past it, they get to the bedding, maybe you don't burn it out, maybe you still have a, an opportunity, but maybe you're back, uh, you know, 300 yards rather than up 100 or 150 right. from the bedding, you know? Right. Um, that would be my best scenario for the mornings. I would also say, too, um, if it's outside of the rut, um, I would probably uh, just give it an hour of daylight. And then I would do some scouting for my evening evening sits. Mm-hmm. I do real well doing that, getting some time and finding some fresh sun in the in the late mornings once they're all bedded, and then um, then hunting in the evening before they come out and smell where I've walked. Yeah. So that's what I do on weekend trips myself when I go out of you know out of town or yep. to new areas. Yeah, hundred percent. Like I like that's. Yeah, I'll answer two different two different ways, or I'll add on, build on what you what you had mentioned. The way you talked about your weekend trips, like it's no mystery. It's like I've picked that up from B style. And that's how that was one hundred percent why I had success in Iowa last year because that was exactly how I hunted, um, and it was successful. I had a ton of encounters. You know, we talked about the misses that I had, and then finally ended up you know tagging tagging a buck. Um, you know, so I, I agree with that, but I'll go one step further. Cause it sounds like he might be new to beast hunting just like in general. And I'll be honest. It's like, I've really adopted, you know, this style of hunting probably like in the past five years. Right. And when I say the past five years, Danny, you and I talked about this on a previous podcast. I think it was the perseverance one that we did right after our hunts. And we both had a couple misses and stuff this past year was just give yourself into the process. Don't tiptoe mm-hmm. around it. Cause I probably spent three years like, I don't want to say not being aggressive, but like, um, I don't want to say not being too careful either, but like, I'm trying to figure out the right way to say it, is that I wasn't just like trusting, trusting the style of hunting. Cause you're going to make mistakes. And the only way you're going to figure out this style of hunting, in my opinion, is like, you've got to go have the experiences and make the mistakes. So if you think you have a piece of yeah. intel that you can execute on, go try to execute on it. If you blow the deer out of his bed, or if you screw up the hunt or whatever, just ask the question, why? what you saw happen, ask the question why that happened and analyze it and then put that in your bag of tricks for the next time. Because what I kicked myself for is that I spent probably three years of adopting, you know, beast tactics and beast style hunting by being afraid to make those mistakes. And when I finally said, screw it, I'm just going to go guns a blazing and whatever happens happens. That was when I started seeing a bunch more deer having a ton of uh, close encounters with my target deer and with higher caliber deer. And it was because I was making some mistakes and I was answering those why questions, which then started helping me to figure out, like, when I'm in this setup, this is how that deer beat me. He was using this thermal. This is what was happening with the thermal at that time of day. And there was a small lip there and it was all pulling in that spot. Like, so these pieces started coming together, but it took making mistakes to figure it out. And so I would say just in general, as an umbrella, go make some freaking mistakes because it'll pay dividends in the long run. I think a guy, uh, the hardest thing to understand with this is that uh, um, you you, you got to be pretty aggressive mm-hmm. to, to get in that window to kill them. But being aggressive at first, you, you're going to be like the bull in the china cabinet. You're going to go too far. You're going <laughs> to kick a deer out of a bed. Yeah. And then you're going to think, well, I ain't doing that again. And you're going to want to stay way back. 
and then you're going to see deer, but you're not going to be able to kill them. Yeah. Because they're not going to get to you, or they're going to split off the side trail. There's a spot you got to get to, and you got to get to it, whether you're spooking deer or not. And you got to be aggressive. I mean, um, there's a lot of guys that just don't have it in them to get that aggressive, and they sit back too far, and they, they see a lot of deer don't kill them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can say pretty much uh, probably 85 or 90% of the time I see a shooter, it's underneath me mm-hmm. um, when it pops out. Right. Because I get aggressive, I go right to where they pop out. Yeah. And and uh, you better believe that I blow it a lot. I, I Every year, I get a little too far and jump a buck and it runs out on me and I'm, I'm, I'm swearing at myself. Right. But if you're not having those encounters where you're kicking that buck out of his bed, swearing at yourself once or twice a year or, or whatever, you're not getting close enough. You're, you're not pushing that envelope close enough. Right. Yeah. hundred percent, man. So I think that leads nicely into this last question for, for all three of us. Um, you know, I'll start with you, Easton. We'll, 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 we'll kick it off with you. This person just simply asked, what's the biggest mistake that we've made in, in the whitetail woods. So Easton, you, uh, you kick us off. I'll go second. And then Dan, we'll let you, we'll let you close her down since you're, since you're the senior member with the most experience here. I would say my biggest mistake or biggest thing that I've learned is not what I was doing, but it was what I wasn't doing. Mm. And it took me a little while to learn it, but just to not be afraid to move. And I think too many people that are introduced to hunting grow up with the, you know, the ladder stand or, you know, hang a set at the beginning of the season and leave it there. And that works for some people, but I learned that once I started moving, it was eye opening how many more deer I was seeing in these spots that existed in areas that I was able to hunt that I would have never known even existed. And I learned once I started moving, I was seeing deer that were bigger than anything I'd ever seen. And that's not to say you need some crazy, you know, fancy setup. You could hunt from the ground, but I think moving was something that just really opened my eyes to what out there that people that don't move a lot probably would never see right yeah no i would uh, i'll build on that because you were kind of headed the same place i was going which was you know two things was uh that you mentioned is being mobile um the biggest one of the biggest mistakes i made was not becoming mobile soon enough um because sim- similar to you easton it's like once i started doing that the hunting got even better and then the second part of that was was a little bit what Dan and I were just talking about, which was getting aggressive and scouting more in season. Like I used to be afraid to scout during the season because I didn't want to move. I didn't want to move deer. You know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to bump them and I was afraid to make a mistake. In the past couple of years, I kind of threw that all out the window just because all the guys I know who are killing good deer, kill them in earlier in the season, you know, and doing it consistently, they were all scouting more than they hunted. And so when I finally like adopted that and just decided, you know what, I'm going to start scouting more than I hunt. And some days I'm going to scout all day and I might not even get a setup because I'm just nothing looked good enough to set up on, you know, and once I adopted that mindset and I just continued to scout, scout, scout until I found the hot sign and set and then set up right in that moment, that was whenever I started having like the best encounter. So it was twofold. It was not being mobile enough early and taking too long to adopt a kind of like continuous scouting approach to my, to, to, to my hunting style. So th- those were my two fails. What about you, Dan? Right. So this is my fail. Yeah. Your failure. What's your biggest mistake that you, that you've made? 
my biggest mistake was probably getting uh, when I was younger too caught up into uh, uh, killing big bucks and uh, uh, too much worried about uh, being somebody. Where I think I've, uh, I obviously don't care about that stuff as much anymore. Mm-hmm. But I think, uh, I think uh, a guy should probably balance his uh, his hunting well. If we got into um, actually uh, what the guy probably wants to hear, <laughs> <laughs> my my, uh, my biggest mistake is probably uh, uh, the ones that bother me the most is the regret of not chasing a particular deer hard enough. Right. Uh, I think about the bear bait buck, that 200 inch animal that lived in the Northwoods. Um, it was uh, three hours from my home. Um, I didn't hunt him enough. I didn't go up there. I know I could have killed that deer. <laughs> and uh, when I went up there and hunted him, I had encounters. It was just, it was a long ride. Right. And I just got tied up in other stuff and I, I should have put more into it. And that's been my regret with a lot of things. I mean, I've had some giant non typicals I've hunted where I, I think back and I think, man, if I would have just put a little more time into it, you know? Um, but I think, uh, everybody kind of has those regrets, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think with anything, you know, you, there's always things you could look back on that you could think, you, you know, you would like to have done differently or whatever, but I thought it was interesting, man. Like the, the first way you framed it was, you know, being too caught up in it because I think the one thing we have to always remember too, it's like, as much as we like, bow hunting and you know chasing whitetails and stuff like that it's um you know don't let it turn us into assholes <laughs> you know right. what i mean it's right. like, and that's and that's what i was getting at i mean yeah. you, you see these young guys nowadays and you, and you see them going on the path and i've been down that path and uh really really it's not where you want to be i mean sometime in your life you're going to realize that something's more important than whitetails Right. Yeah. <laughs> but it takes a little age and a few white pills on your wall to realize <laughs> it really wasn't that, that important to kill them. Right. Right. Well, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, um, you know, it's like, if you get mad because of someone else's success, then like you need to reevaluate, you know what I mean? Like you can't, that's just not a way to go through life. Cause you're going to constantly end up miserable, you know? Um, yeah. but you know, you say, you, you know, a lot of us, a lot of us think that we're going to be the best white pill hunter there is because, you get good and you get cocky. And if you don't get a little cocky, you won't get really good. Right. <laughs> Believe yeah. it or not. That's how yeah. I feel. Yeah. But no, I, you get I would cocky agree and that. you think you're going to be the best, best bull hunter there is, but really it's not apples to apples. There's always somebody that's got more money to spend more time. Their daddy owns a, a 3000 acre uh, farm in Iowa. I mean, there's always people who couldn't, couldn't hunt, besides you anywhere on public land or wherever you hunt that are going to do better than you just because they can buy that success. Right. And, and it's not apples to apples. You really have to look in the mirror and be happy with you for yourself and for what you're accomplishing and set your goals to yourself. Yeah. Because, um, like you said, um, when I was younger, uh, kind of ashamed to say this, but I wasn't the greatest husband. I wasn't the greatest father in the world my life revolved around chasing deer. Right. It was more important than jobs, careers, money, having a nice house, living in a nice neighborhood. I put deer first before everything. And, uh, you you know, um, you're not beating anybody. Right. You're only beating yourself. So you got to look at your own goals and make sure you balance them and and that you're happy with what you're accomplishing. And, And it's hard to say to people because, 
I know how it is when you haven't gotten a big buck and you just want to get that first one. And then you want to prove that you're a hunter. So you want to, you want to prove you can do it year after year. And it just starts getting out of hand after a while, you know, it's like, uh, like an addiction. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one thing I think, you know, I, uh, I'm fortunate. I think that I have, you know, good friends in, in the hunt, like good friends who are hunters that we're all diehard hunters, you know, and, but we also have like some perspective, you know what I mean? To where, you know, I'll give you an example, our mutual friend, Chad Sylvester, right? I hunt with Chad a lot. Um, he's one of my best friends and, um, I would be as, as satisfied for him to kill a big deer as I would for myself. You know what I mean? Even if we were hunting the same deer and he ended up killing it, I would be as happy for him as I would be for me. And I know he would feel the same way, you know, in the opposite. Right. And I think it's having guys who are dedicated to it, but like are still like put family first and being good people first and, 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 and all those things, you know what I mean? Like that to me is, that to me is important. Um, you know, and so I, I've kind of given into the fact that like, look, I'm not going to be the next, like, you know, great American white tail hunter, but I'm going to be the best version of that, that I can be, you know what I mean? And that's, and that's all I can, and that's all I'm going to ask for. And that's what I'm going to work toward. Right. Um, and I think you're right. You just have to set your own goals. And, and if you can honestly look at yourself and say, Hey, I worked my ass off and tried to get there. And if it happened, great. If it didn't, then if the effort was there, then that's all that matters. You know what I mean? And then with the effort, you know, in, in time, the other things will come, you know? So, but with that, we got a little deep and philosophical Easton. I don't know. You maybe you, maybe you feel like you didn't signed up for a therapy session, but you got one anyway. So there you go. <laughs> um, before we get out of here, uh, Dan, we want to send people to the hunting beast forum, the, the website, make sure you're following on the Facebook page, the, the members page on Facebook, also the hunting beast, uh, Facebook page itself. And is there anywhere else we need to send people? Uh, the YouTube page is pretty good. I got a lot of good hunts on there and a lot of good, uh, uh, tactics in video. Yeah, definitely, definitely be checking that out. And if you don't have the DVDs, they're worth their weight in gold. It will change your life. Make sure you're picking up the DVDs too. Mr. Enfault, sir, I appreciate you, uh, doing these sessions with me. I think after this, we have one more for the series and then we'll, uh, and then, 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 uh, I can go ahead and take back my extra room in my house since I've been keeping you here captive to do these sessions. I appreciate your time, buddy. Well, I appreciate being on here and I appreciate, uh, Easton coming on too. Yeah. Easton, thanks for yeah, coming on absolutely. and joining us, man. It was good. It was good to have you. I've got your number. You've got mine. Let's make sure we stay in touch, especially since we know we, we hunt some similar, similar areas in, o- in Ohio. If, uh, if I can give you any, any tips or GPS coordinates on I gotta go down there one of these days in school, you guys. Hey, I'm, I'm into it, man. I, <laughs> I haven't been down there yet. I keep hearing about uh, Southern Ohio. Yeah, it's uh, oh, well, man. you, you gotta, love it. You got an open invite, buddy. You just you let me. I got a <laughs> rut wagon now. Have you? Have I told you about my rut wagon? Nice. Yeah. No, I, I don't think so. I got a six by ten trailer that I converted. I put a bunk bed in it and then a uh, a hammock bed in for Chad because he and I are doing like the next five years of traveling together every year, every season. And uh, I put a, cool. uh, a Dickinson Marine propane heater with a chimney out the top. I got a solar, a 1,500-watt-hour solar generator and some solar panels to put on a roof so it's completely off-grid and ready to roll. So I, uh, Nice. Yeah, that's what I've been working on on the weekends is, is doing that and converting a little bug-out slash rut wagon that I can hunt out of state with and be off-grid. So you have an open invite to, uh, to, to come join and bunk with me in the rut wagon whenever you want. 
All right. So, all right, fellas, that's a wrap for this show. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. If you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating and be sure to subscribe to the podcast of Hell. While you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there as well. I'd be super appreciative if you do those couple things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Maven Optics. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.